the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Bob France, here on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, eight minutes after 10 o'clock, and hour number two is underway on this Tuesday, the 29th morning of the sixth month of the year of our Lord, 2021. Appreciate you being with us. If you're on hold, I apologize I didn't get to you. We'll uh, have another segment for calls at about uh, 10.50 of this hour. Because for the next three segments, we are going to be joined by the brilliant Peter Kersenow, member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, longest-serving member of that commission, by the way. Also a Cleveland attorney, a best-selling author, a columnist, and more. Peter Kersenow, good morning, my friend. How are you? Doing well, Bob. Uh, I see that the preseason rankings for college football are out, and uh, it's the usual suspects. Again, it's Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma. I did see that Cincinnati made the top ten. Um, kudos to them. But I'm um, wondering, you know, how all this is going to play out now that uh, players, they're, they're going to become honest, I guess. They're, they're going to be uh, eligible for all manner of compensation for likeness, image, etc. You know, Pete, I, I, I have debated this doing sports radio for a good part of the last 24 years, because um, that's how I started out, was doing sports radio before I get into news and politics. And I still have done it um, occasionally. Um, I, I, I'm not against kids, you know, making money, especially when they don't have the time and the ability to work in campus jobs the way normal students can, because their days are taken up by countless numbers of hours of of you know athletic responsibilities, practices, weightlifting sessions, meetings, film sessions, uh, and so on and so forth. Mandatory study tables, and so I'm not against kids being able to, you know, get paid some money. And guess what? They already are by way of stipends. They get stipends to help them, you know, through because they can't make, can't take jobs. But allowing them to make money the way the NCAA and uh, obviously the uh, Supreme Court agreed to make money off of their likeness and image is just turning college sports into professional sports. They will literally have contracts waiting them. If you come to Tuscaloosa, here's how much you can make because we're going to have your image and likeness on every T-shirt, every sticker, everything we can find, and you're going to make a bunch. And then Columbus is going to come calling and saying, we can do better than that. Uh, we'll have you here, there, and everywhere, and every appearance you make and every, every autograph you sign is going to be worth you know, this much money. It's just going to be a bidding war. It's like free agency in college sports. And, Pete, that destroys college sports, in my opinion. It does. Uh, you and I both played in college. You know, we enjoyed our experiences. I think uh, in terms of competitiveness, competitiveness, though, 
what's going to happen is there's going to be several different tiers now. There are going to be some schools that so far have been competitive because they've had good programs, good coaches, they've done things the right way, mm-hmm. uh, but they're no longer going to be competitive. You know, it's going right. to be, I, I just mentioned the top four, they have been perennially, you know, among the top ten, but it's going to be Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, uh, Notre Dame, Oklahoma, those schools, and the rest are going to be the little sisters of the poor. You know, they're going to be, they're not going to have that opportunity. The best of the best are going to be going to the big-time schools that have the greatest amount of exposure, network and uh, cable contracts. They're going to have the most amount of money to spend on these guys. And uh, it's, it's it, something significant is going to be lost. Uh, it remains to be seen the differences. But I don't know, I, I guess out of nostalgia and just overall conservatism, I kind of preferred the old system, but I get it just yeah. as you do. I mean, I understand all of this. You know, I used to teach sports law a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And, you know, this is kind of uh, a poor sister corollary, corollary to the Kurt Flood case, you know, where it's not yeah. so much free agency, but it, it broke a barrier that had kept in place a certain regime that had worked well for the owners of baseball for a long, long time, right. and to some extent fans, because I remember as a kid, what the things I liked was you knew who your team was, and you knew who was on exactly. And, you know, each year you could look forward to, yeah, there's going to be some changes here and there, but pretty much the guts of the team was going to be there. You formed attachments with them. Um, well, the only changes would be require, retirements, trades, or and draft picks. That's it. Everybody right. else is under contract, and you're back. And that's, you know. Right. But, 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 but that's the pro side. It's the college side that obviously you started talking about. And it really, you know, as you know, my son is on campus right now. He reported last Sunday and, uh, I know how things go and, and, and I know what they're doing for him. And I know about the stipends to take care of their meals during the month, uh, month and a half or so that they're on campus before the fall term actually starts and they have to report for practice in, uh, on August 1st. Uh, and, and it's just about the right amount. It's enough to, you know, to make sure that you're not, uh, working for free, essentially, and being forced to pay out of pocket or out of mom and dad's pockets to feed yourself during these periods of time. So they get a stipend. They'll get a stipend in the first quarter, uh, second quarter, and, and throughout the, uh, throughout the academic calendar. And that's good. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But turning it into a bidding war, as you said, the way the Kurt Flood, you know, uh, free agency, what it did to professional sports, I think is, is going to have a very detrimental effect on, on college sports. Those those top teams that you're talking about, the, the richest teams will always be able to outbid everybody else for the top talent. And, and, and right. it'll, it'll never be, you'll never see anything like a BYU win a national championship again. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate. You know, and it's similar to, not similar, but there are echoes of what you see in uh, pro baseball, where you've got the big time Yankees, Dodgers, the Cubs, you know, they got a gazillion dollars, and small market franchises really can't compete. I give the Indians no. big-time kudos because they have to actually use their brains to field a team. The Yankees can make mistakes all over the place in fielding a team because they simply just have to throw money at somebody. And, you know, okay, that's we right. made a mistake there. Let's throw $30 million at Francisco Lindor. Um, you know, that's the Mets. But nonetheless, you know, yeah. we can't afford to do that. We've got to be very good in our scouting. We have to be very judgmental in terms of who we put onto the field. That's why it means so much more when the Indians make a World Series or the Tampa Bay Rays win a World Series, you know, and uh, the Oakland A's go to a World Series uh, on these bargain basement prices. It means a lot more than the teams that just buy their way there. I completely agree. Yeah. All right, Pete, let's get on to the streets now and let's talk about policing in America. This is, uh, this is just incredible. We all know that the Democrats are guilty of revisionist history. They try to rewrite history. They try to change everything that you know about slavery, about which party was responsible for it, which party abolished it, which party was for 
before Jim Crow, which party was against uh, the Civil Rights Act and so forth. They revise history all the time, but now they're trying to literally revise the present, like telling us right now that it's that it isn't them. They who have called for the defunding of police in America that has led to this extraordinary rise in crime in America's biggest Democrat-run cities, it's Republicans. It's the Republicans who's, who, who have uh, defunded the police. Here's uh, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki. The president did mention that the American Rescue Plan, the state and local funding, something that was supported by the president, a lot of Democrats who supported and voted for the bill, could help ensure uh, local cops were kept on the beat in communities across the country. As you you know, didn't receive a single Republican vote. That funding has been used to keep cops on the beat. Now, you expect that from Biden and Biden's spokesperson, but, well, I guess you probably also expect it from the media and people like Chris Wallace. Congressman Banks, you voted against that package, against that $350 billion, just like every other Republican in the House and Senate. So can't you make the argument that it's you and the Republicans who are defunding the police? Pete, that $350 billion, you know, and maybe I want to make sure everybody else knows, was part of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that sent money overseas and put money into pork projects for Democrats all over this country. Trillions of dollars we do not have, and that only 9% of which had to do with COVID relief. Now they're trying to say if you voted against that waste, that you voted against the funding of police, and it's the Republicans' fault. Yeah, uh, first of all, Bob, I, I was remiss in not uh, congratulating you. Kudos on a great interview of President Trump. That was a, a great get oh. on your part. And uh, I was able to listen to a good portion of it and it was phenomenal, really good. Thank you. But um, with respect to... <laughs> you can, I, this is so absurd that... It's not even infuriating at this point. You can only laugh. It's uh, extraordinary. The, the one thing that is infuriating is the Democrats could never get away with this because, as you say, they're doing this in real time right now. At the same time that many of their progressive people in, in Congress are continuing to say defund the police at the same time that cities like Minneapolis and New York have you know slashed up to a billion dollars, L.A., and they're continuing to say defund the police, Portland and Seattle. You know, they can get away with this because they know they have a compliant and utterly corrupt media that will carry the water for them, who will switch on a dime. Uh, look, Chris Wallace says, that's extraordinary. That's extraordinary what he said. It has nothing to do with defunding the police. First of all, the money that goes from those bills, as we know, most of it is COVID relief. It's a supposed COVID relief, but it's just one big grab bag of goodies uh, in the progressive wish list. But... When it goes to those cities that have defunded the police, the monies are not going to be going to the police. The local governments are the ones who've decided to defund the police, and now they're reaping the whirlwind with prodigious increases in crime. Everybody with more than two brain cells to rub together predict this more than a year ago. We saw it coming, but now what's changed is that depending upon which poll, I've seen at least three polls now, and up to 80 was the highest I saw. 88% of people object to and and think that the defunding of the police movement was just complete insanity, which which it was. So the Democrats have looked at those polls. Their handmaidens in the media understand what's going on. So they will simply look at almost everything else they've done. uh, This media for the last three years 
uh, of the Trump or the first three years of the Trump presidency perpetuated the utter complete Russia fraud. It was a complete fraud. And most of us understood from the very beginning when we heard about the P tape that it was just absurd. But they perpetuated, kept running with breathless stories about it. Many of their brethren lost jobs because they, they were just too over the top in their reporting and falsified things that it was abundantly clear that they had done so. Then they do a lot of, a lot of other things. Look at the progression, calling the January 6th uh, 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 entry into the Capitol an insurrection as if we had armed people there who were going to take over the United States of America. Uh, the, then they call these protests over the last year mostly peaceful while they're standing in front of burning buildings and cars when $40 billion in damages occurs, hundreds of police officers assaulted and hurt, dozens of deaths. You know, and, and they went on with hydroxychloroquine. The virus didn't originate in Wuhan. Uh, Trump, you know, ordered the gassing of protesters. Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, uh, there's so much of this that the Democrats now know they're insulated from almost anything. And they can say something as absurd as, oh, no, it's the Republicans who want to defund the police. We missed something, Bob, because almost every day last summer in, into, into the fall, we heard AOC and at least a dozen other Democrats constantly beat the drum about defund. Well, and mostly we heard these local politicians, especially in Minneapolis. Well, Pete, um, it, it was actually worse than that. First of all, with respect to AOC and some of others, the others like her, she was adamant, I'm not saying just defund. I'm saying right. abolish, get rid of, goodbye, no police, no jails, etc. So that's number one. And that is all on tape. They're trying to unring a bell they cannot unring. It's all there. And the number two, the, the, the proof is in the pudding. It's the biggest liberal cities that have literally slashed their police budgets by a million dollars here and a billion dollars there. I mean, New York City, for crying out loud, is just exploded in violent crime because they did do exactly what they said they were going to do, and they defunded. So there's no there's no Republican or Democrat here that's even you know remotely uh, able to be argued. This these are liberal Democrat run cities, mayors and councils who have already literally not done what they said. It's not just words. They defunded their own police forces they slash their funds they have a fresh you know skeleton crews out there and they're expected to somehow to go to, to be able to go out there and keep the peace yeah exactly right and as absurd as an ins and insane as this claim by the democrats now is that republicans are defunding the police and i don't think many people are buying it here's the danger People aren't buying it now, but what we've seen throughout recent history and, of course, past history is if a lie is repeated often enough, especially a really big lie, after a while, it becomes viewed as the truth. And Republicans fall for this every time because they fail to understand that, as absurd as it is, it merits vigorous pushback all the time, every single time it's said. I know it sounds like it's... You know, something that's so tiresome to have to point out an obvious truth, but unfortunately you have to do that because you look at a whole number of issues where the Democrats have flipped the debate, or at least attempted to flip the, flip the debate, and they have convinced at least a sizable percentage of the population as to the fact that whatever propaganda they're issuing is in fact the truth. Republicans yeah. need to make sure that they push back every single chance they get, even though they understand, many of us believe, of course, and understand clearly that this is a big joke. It won't be a joke come the next election. There's going to be a wanna... of people who are going to believe it. I want to send us into this break with a little bit of rage. Uh, <laughs> I want everybody to be enraged, because I want what I'm about to play for you on the way into the break here. Um, 
This is somebody named Cheryl Dorsey, an author who was on MSNBC with Tiffany Cross. Because what I said a moment ago to you, Pete, they slash these budgets, they're putting out skeleton crews of cops out there and then expecting them to keep the peace. When they can't, because cops, first of all, they're outnumbered. Second of all, they're afraid of either being killed or prosecuted. Killed if they go too soft. Prosecuted if they go too hard. Um, they're not able to keep the, 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 you know, the crime rates down. And this is what the left, again, Cheryl Dorsey, a left-wing author on MSNBC, says about those police, Peter Kersenow. I think it's a combination of things. And we have to understand that police officers are the, are the backbone patrol, particularly are the backbone of any police department. And this reminds me of back in the day when I was on LAPD, when officers' feelings were heard and uh, they had the term blue flu, where officers openly talked about slow response to radio calls. You can... You can break a police chief <laughs> if response time is low, if you're not clearing crimes, if you're not responding to high-priority calls, shootings in progress, murder, robbery. And so officers now we see across these 18,000 police departments are butthurt because, you know, they can't run willy-nilly through a police department and abuse with reckless abandon. So they're stepping away from specialized units. She called police officers butthurt because they're not allowed to go with reckless abandon through the streets and abuse people. This is, this is what I want to leave you with, and we'll be right back. Peter Kersenow continuing with us. we got a short segment here before the bottom of the hour. I want to use that segment, Peter Kersenow, to talk about and to listen to your thoughts on uh, America hate in America, uh, because that's what's going on. Usually you would think that a great place of American pride might be the U.S. Olympic team, putting on the red, white, and blue and going to compete against the rest of the world's top stars for the pride of your nation is, is every athlete's dream. But that apparently is not the case. At least one um, a BMX biker in, in that event says they want to get to the podium with a medal so they can burn the flag on the podium. Now a hammer thrower named Gwen Berry is extremely offended at the national anthem being played when she's around. She put an athlete uh, or an activist athlete shirt on her head during her qualifier uh, medal ceremony and basically has said that America is systemically racist and that's why she doesn't like it. This is what Tom Cotton said. All right, Tom, where are you? I don't think it's too much when athletes are competing to wear the Stars and Stripes, to compete under the Stars and Stripes in the Olympics, for them to simply honor that flag and our anthem on the medal stand. I am calling for the USOC to literally cut people like this from the Olympic team. She has declared her mission is larger than her sport. It's to advocate for people who are victims of systemic racism. That's not what the U.S. Olympic team, in fact, I don't think that's an Olympic event. I think she ought to be cut from the team. Pete, what about you? What's what's striking to me about people like Gwen Berry is they claim that they are allegedly oppressed by the United States, yet the United States is going to allow them to represent the United States of America in the Olympics. I mean, that's a kind of strange oppression, that you have this opportunity to be on the public stage, on the world stage, probably benefit financially from it, all because of a country that has oppressed you. That's kind of peculiar. Uh, you can't kind of uh, square the circle on that one. But, you know, she... It, it, this is the American team 
This is a little bit different, although, you know, you and I both had real problems with the NFL players kneeling for the national anthem. Um, Here, she's representing the United States of America, not the Cleveland Browns, for example. It's one thing when, for example, let's just say that some player, she came in third place. The person who came in first place, as I understand it, set a hammer record for women in the United States, but she gets no publicity whatsoever. This woman came in third place in the hammer throw. Now, I bet most of your listeners have never even seen a hammer throw competition. It's like the bastard child of the shot put in the discus. No disrespect to the hammer throw. I think it's kind of cool. But nonetheless, it's an obscure event. No one pays attention to it. She came in third place, and her team is the United States of America. So imagine an obscure player on, say, the Tennessee Titans going out onto the field and tearing up the Titans' uniform. I don't think the Titans would have a whole lot of patience with that. You know, they may permit that. I, I was person. thinking about it, Peter. I was thinking about it in a way that our listeners can maybe understand a little bit more. It would be like, uh, you know, a third stringer for the Ohio State Buckeyes after a victory, rather than going over to St. Carmen, Ohio with his teammates, standing aside and putting on a block M hat. Uh, that, that's, that's what it would be like. That would be the kind of defamation, if you will, right. of the team and the brotherhood that you supposedly had with these guys. Exactly right. This is your team that gave you the opportunity to showcase your talents and possibly make some money off of it. Let's face it. Olympic athletes, if you medal, you're going to get money off of it. You have all types of opportunities that weren't otherwise available to you. And she's spitting in the face, first of all, of the greatest nation in history. If, If she's going to turn her back on this country, there's not a country in the world if she's operating by objective standards that she won't turn her back on. This is Well that that's 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 what I think a lot of people are saying here, Peter, is you know what, there's two hundred other nations in this world, roughly, give or take. There's two hundred other nations. We'll buy you a one way ticket. Find the one that is not as as um oppressive toward people who look like you as you are uh comfortable with. Go and learn how to throw the hammer there and and go compete with them. I have a feeling that she could tour each and every one of the other six continents and two hundred other countries and is eventually going to say, yeah, this sucks, I'm going back to America. Then maybe, yeah. just maybe, she'll stand for the national anthem. Right. And, uh-huh. you know, as far as I'm concerned, she shouldn't get any more publicity. She's already had her, you know, 15 seconds of fame, yeah. and it's for being third place in the hammer throw. And, she, so, and that's just in the U.S., by the way. She's not going to meddle against the rest of the world. She's not going to be on a stage anywhere anyway. But she is. She's milking this for all it's worth. Pete, let me take our time out for news here. We'll come back with more on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 1037 now. Let's continue with Peter Kersenow. One more segment on AM 1420, The Answer. We're delving into a whole host of issues this morning with Mr. Kersenow. And Pete, I want to go to our U.S. military, and I want to go to our military preparedness. Um, This is terrifying to me. The highest-ranking officer in the Navy, Admiral Michael Gilday, Chief of Naval Operations, was grilled this past week by members of Congress and a committee about the Navy and the military as a whole, their commitment to wokeness, which many have described as weakness. Uh, Representative Jim Banks asked Gilday uh, directly about his promotion of a book, a recommendation of a book by Ibram X. Kendi uh, about anti-racism, 
about how to be an anti-racist, a book that uh, teaches that it is impossible to be neutral. You are either a racist or you are an anti-racist. And to be an anti-racist, you can't just sit there and not be racist. You have to do things to become anti-racist. In other words, to harm white people to the benefit of of non-white people. Um, One of the questions that Banks asked Gilday is about Amy Coney Barrett. Um, Kendi labeled Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett a white colonizer because she adopted two children children from Haiti. Yes or no, sir, do you believe uh, or do you personally consider opposition to interracial adoption an extremist belief? He asked him several other yes or no questions about extremism, which Gilday refused to answer. I don't know about you, Pete, but you've testified before Congress before. I didn't think you had a choice. I thought it was the the members who run the the the, uh, uh, the these hearings, and you answer the questions asked of you. Gilday said, "I'm not going to answer these cherry picked uh, uh, things from somebody's book." And that the, at the end of this um, five minutes with Banks, this is how it ended, Peter. Let me ask you again. Uh, Sorry, hold on a second. We're not all the way connected here. I was trying to cue that up for you there uh, during the break here. Let's try this again. This is how it ended. African-American in this country, what he's experienced. Let me ask you again, Admiral. Do you expect that after sailors read this book that says that the United States Navy is racist, that we will increase or decrease morale, cohesion, and recruiting race into the United States Navy? I think we'll be a better Navy from having open, honest conversations about racism. Peter, he thinks we'll have a better Navy for having all of our sailors read Ibram X. Kendi's book that says white people are the devil and they must be put down because of their their past oppression and their current oppression of black people. We'll have a better Navy and better military forces if we have competent general officers and admirals and so forth who understand what the mission of the armed forces are. And I'm not saying that they don't understand it, but apparently they have decided to go woke because that's the zeitgeist. One of the questions, I think, you know, I would like uh, them to appear before, say, the Senate, where you have a Tom Cotton or a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley, not to take anything away from the folks in the House. I, I know Jim Jordan might pose a question like this, but there's a fundamental question here that should be posed to either Gilday or Mark Milley, who also testified regarding the same kind of thing, and he's, you know, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I mean, these are the top-level guys, the CNO, the top guy in the Navy, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he's in charge of the whole shooting match. Mm -hmm. But the question that should be asked is, if you are promoting and you abide by Ibrahim Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, did you read, General Milley and Admiral Gilday, the very prominent section where he says he provides remedies? And he says the only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. And he says the only remedy for present discrimination is future discrimination. In other words, General Milley, Admiral Gilday, he is advocating violating the U.S. Constitution, the same Constitution you are sworn to protect and defend. It's a solemn oath. You give your life and limb to defend the Constitution, yet you are promoting something that violates the Constitution. What do you say to that? This is just reprehensible, and they should not be allowed to get away with this. This is eroding our military effectiveness. It will divide our forces. Uh, You know, look, 
you can talk to experts on this, but you don't even need an expert. You get this intuitively. The, the key to having an effective military fighting force is unit cohesion. You can't have everybody fighting one another and expect to fight, say, a China or a Russia. And those two forces are looking at us and saying to Admiral Milley, I'm sorry, Admiral Gilday and General Milley, keep it up, folks. You're doing our best work for us. Um, Pete, I've talked about this, this with you in the past. Um, so briefly, just to kind of recap it, what do you think the Chinese are thinking when they see this stuff in our news? What do you think that the Russians are thinking? What do you think the Iranians are thinking? What do you think the North Koreans are thinking when they see that our military is infighting amongst itself, deciding how racist it is and what steps they need to make our military more woke? What do you think that these general threats to American survival think when they see this? Yeah, this is not rocket science. They're thinking we're winning. And if we bide our time, the United States is going to cannibalize itself. You can't have such self-loathing, especially in the military, the line of defense against the China's, Russia's, Iran's, and North Korea's. You can't have it and expect to survive, especially when all of our other institutions are engaged in the same type of, you know, it's not simply self-flagellation. This is, we're eating each other alive here. This is craziness. Our academic institutions, our, our, many of our, our businesses and, and uh uh, uh, non-profit institutions, the military, everything seems to be crumbling around us like termites eating away at the foundation of what used to be very proud and successful enterprises. But again, the last line of defense is quite literally the armed forces. China right now is, it, it, a lot of people actually believe China is now, right now, not in the future, but right now the number one force in the entire world. It is true. Do you think that was the Peter Kirsten? Peter Kirsten, do you think that was the case 10 months ago? It was getting there, but what we had is at least a serious president who understood the threat and was making sure he could do whatever he could, despite the fact that it had a recalcitrant Congress in the hands of, uh, of Nancy Pelosi, or at least House of Representatives, doing everything he could to get the kind of funding and the kind of priorities necessary to thwart the China threat and the Russian threat. But that's not what's happening right now. Everywhere you look, we are capitulating, we are yielding, we are making it easier for the Chinese, and to a lesser extent the Russians, uh, by only a lesser extent I mean that the Russians don't pose the ready threat that China does, despite the fact that Russia has more nuclear weapons than anybody else. But they can't field the kind of army, and definitely not a navy, that the Chinese have. So this is, this is significant, what's going on here. We're abdicating the federal government's prime, the government's primary responsibility is to protect the United States of America and its citizens, and we're doing everything else but that. We're doing all the things we didn't empower a government to do, and yet they're completely, they're not just simply abdicating the responsibility, they're working against what's necessary to preserve and protect the United States of America. Truly astonishing. Truly astonishing. I can't imagine, again, I don't want to go back into history, but I can't imagine the Eisenhowers, the Pattons, the MacArthurs, those folks doing anything even remotely like this. They're, they're turning over in their graves. Peter Kirsten, our final topic of the morning for you, and it uh, equates, in a manner of speaking, to critical race theory and some of the things that we are talking about, systemic racism. You and I discussed a few weeks ago when uh, some of our academics, our intellectual elites, uh, decided that the math is, is actually racist. 
because getting the right answer and taking all of the possible steps that they're needed to do there is kind of a implicitly white thing and that uh, people of color ought to be able to come up with their own answers and as long as there's logic behind them and they tried really hard they ought to accept those answers so math is racist apparently we have moved on to grammar um Towson University recently hosted a virtual is it Towson or Towson I don't know we're uh, hosted a virtual anti-racist pedagogy symposium, according to Campus Reform, which criticized university writing curriculum and programs for being racist and perpetuating whiteness. Apparently, proper grammar and proper writing is racially uh, in, uh, insensitive. Quote, as the country begins its long-awaited reckoning with institutional racism, colleges and universities have been engaging deeply in the ethical dilemma of our time. How do our institutional structures and practices contribute to the problem of silencing, marginalizing, minoritizing, and otherwise harming black and indigenous students of color? What do we need to change or uh, to, I'm sorry, what do we need to change to create not just a passively inclusive atmosphere for students, but an actively anti-racist one? And the answer is language. The way black language is devalued in schools reflects how black lives are devalued in the world, they write. An anti-black and linguistic racism that is used to diminish black language and black students in the classroom is not separate from the rampant and deliberate and black racism and violence inflicted upon black people in society. I wrote two words in response to that, Pete. Those two words were, I'm done. So, <laughs> I'm done. You, you, can, you can take it from there. Yeah, I look, I think that any alleged educational institution that would issue something that moronic is self-evidently incapable of teaching students and should have their accreditation withdrawn. That is one of the dumbest things, not to mention racist things imaginable. As if black people can't speak correctly, so what do we have to do? Lower the standards. The reason why we have a grammar... Peter, Peter, for the, for the record here, for those who don't know you, what race are you? Geez, I don't know. I, you know, unless I subscribe <laughs> to, to Marxism, I guess I must be uh, white or something. No, I'm. I, look, black people can count. Black people can speak. Black people can use grammar correctly. But what we've got here are, is a racist construct that says any time we have something in which blacks don't do as well as whites do, such as in English class, maybe in grammar, if that's the case at Towson University, I don't know if that's the case anywhere else. Heck, when I was going to school, at least in the Ivy League, blacks were doing pretty well in English classes. But nonetheless, the presumption is Blacks can't meet the certain standards, so we eliminate the standards. And we've seen this kind of movement going on for the last couple of years, several years actually, throughout academia, where they are eliminating honors classes, for example, because they find that 95% of the people participating in the class are either Asian or white. Uh, they're eliminating all manner of testing, standardized testing, eliminating it, not just making it easier. They were doing that for a while, but now they're eliminating it. There are no true objective measures now for determining achievement and competency. That's going to augur very badly in the very near future when we have people who actually, actually have no ability, what's, or uh, they, they have no idea what they're doing, and and substandard ability 
being placed in positions of um, you know great responsibility. And you know, you're probably saying to yourselves, "Well, we've got a lot of those people there now." Uh, but yeah, and that's true. But it is a stand. It is a standard that is necessary. Medical school. You don't want to go see a doctor, for example, who you suspect may not have necessarily passed biology 101. These are. This is serious. Now, what has happened here is we have had affirmative action for the last 50 years, and it was enshrined into law, basically, or legitimized to some extent after the Bakke decision, but mostly after the Grutter and Gratz decisions in the early 2000s, the, the Michigan the Michigan decision. So, we've had cases that have been in place now, and the law has been in place for several decades. And what's happened is, what we find is, black students are admitted based on standards that are lower than that of whites. And what would you expect from that? Well, what you would expect is a greater dropout rate. It's profoundly greater. And a greater, um, a lower GPA on average rate for black students. 50% of black students congregate in the bottom 10% of their respective classes. So what do they do? Instead of doing the hard work necessary, and by this I mean our institutions, doing the hard work necessary, K-12 through and also in college, to improve the performance of all students, make teaching more rigorous, spending more time in these things, actually trying to get people to do the best they be the best they can be, they instead take the easy route and simply say, oh, this is racist, let's lower the standards. That hurts everybody, and we were talking about this just a couple of minutes ago. China's not doing that. No other nation really is doing that. They're not lowering their standards. And who do you think is going to have a more competitive business environment, more competitive military? It's going to be those nations that continue to hold their students to a high standard. This is, um, you know, this is almost a national security issue, not grammar necessarily, but when we lack the precision to communicate and we're lowering standards, we're going to reap the whirlwind Ten, 10 years down the road, maybe even sooner than that. So, um, but, you know, among other things, I don't know that we should be engaging in so much discussion of this. We should just call it what it is, stupid and dumb, and say, you know what, we're not going to Towson State University or whatever university is doing something like this. You guys are too dumb to be instructing my student. <laughs> Peter Kersenow, that entire response was incredibly articulate. Your subject-verb agreement was grammatically correct. You had a tremendous vocabulary, many multisyllabic words, and i got to say, as a black man, you're a race traitor. Gramma- being grammatically correct and accurate is, is perpetuating whiteness and perpetuating racism. Clearly, Peter Kersenow is a black male. You have embraced whiteness. You are a race traitor and a disgrace to the African-American community. You know, unfortunately, okay. Bob, there's a significant portion of the progressives that would agree. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. Uh, that's why you are uh, included in uh, or would be included in uh, uh, Larry Elder's movie, which is, uh, which is, of course, Uncle Tom. Peter Kersenow, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for the terrific uh, education care, you offer us each week. Thank you, sir. Bye. Hey, hey, Pete, real quick. Yeah. Hey, Pete. Hey, that top 25, I didn't even know it came out, but since uh, you brought it up, I looked it up. How was a team that finished number 20 in the country last year in the ESPN rankings, number 23 in the coaches' poll, who returns 20 out of 22 starters, not in the top 25? And I'm talking about the boys in Muncie. Oh, really? 
Yeah. yeah. That's a huge mistake because each year Ball State fields a great team. And I have, I have a feeling, I have a feeling, I'm not sure of this, I have a feeling this year it's going to be maybe their greatest team because they've <laughs> got a guy, Travis <laughs> Kelsey. A, they've got an NFL player no. on their roster. They've got twenty NCAA rules. They've got twenty returning starters, and none of them are, are young Travis Kelsey. But uh, but that they, they they deserve a spot in that preseason top twenty five. Thank you, Pete. Take care, right. Bob. Ten fifty three. Let's get out and come back and finish her up on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. All right, 10.58, obviously we are winding down. I've got less than a minute left for you, so I want to use this to uh, remind you of a big event coming up tonight in Medina. You know this man. You've heard this man, right? Ouch! 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 Immediately out! Don't, I don't want to talk to you. Not a word. I don't care what you have to say. Ouch! That's Pastor Artur Palowski, the Polish pastor from Canada, from Calgary. He's in Medina tonight with Ohio Freedom Fighters, 7 o'clock at 7291 Stone Road in Medina. It's going to be a glorious event, a courageous, faith-filled event uh, presented by FEC United. To get tickets for this and information, log on to fecunited.com and then look for the Medina event with Pastor Arthur Pawlowski. I'm going to try to make it out there myself, uh, but if I can't and you do, well, then I guess I'll just say... Ouch! 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 Immediately out! Don't, I don't want to talk to you. Not a word. I don't care what you have to say. Ouch!